Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is a pleasure to have you here with me. It's an honor to share these conversations with you. And this here episode marks the launch of season 10 of For a Living. Yep, tenor. It's bananas. 10 seasons. Hey, how do you like the music? It's kind of perfect, right? The song is called Tributary, and it's the piano work of my distinguished guest today. But before we dive into my conversation with this distinguished guest, I don't want to pass up the opportunity to express my heartfelt gratitude to all y'all who support me on Patreon. I am hella grateful to each and every one of you. Look, it's a listener-supported project. I can't do it without you. And once in a while, (laughs) I do seize a moment to give thanks and to solicit support. So if you like what you hear, please head over to patreon.com slash for a living and join the community of listeners who feel connected to these conversations. That's patreon.com slash for a living. I link to that in the show notes. Also in the show notes, I link to all my other projects, including my free weekly newsletter, which I might add here has become kind of a labor of love kind of an obsession, maybe more of an obsession than anything else. What can I say? I get obsessed and I'm sort of obsessed with my guest today. How obsessed? (laughs) You want to know how obsessed? Just wait for it. Wait for it. Okay. Eric Pan is an artist and an innovator. He's a a student and a storyteller and, and something of a tour guide, I might say. Eric and I discuss how he creates spaces for people to commune with themselves, to connect with others, uh, to explore the moment, and to go on journeys. Yeah. Eric speaks poetically about inspiration and intention and imagination, and we listen to his music together which was a gift rarer than gold. Now, I might confess here that I had wanted to invite Eric onto season seven of For a Living, but I was a little reticent to do so because I kind of didn't know how to deal with the totality of his work. Like there's his work on the 88 and it's legit, but there's also the language he brings to it. And then there's this experiential curation piece And then he's all wrapped up in the NFT world and, 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 and so I was just a bit intimidated by like how I could ground a conversation amidst this entire interdisciplinary endeavor. But I knew I had so much to learn from Eric. And uh, so here we are. Now that said, as longtime listeners well know, I wrote and recorded a song about each of the podcast conversations I had with artists on season seven of the podcast, right? So I I had the conversation, I meditated on that conversation for weeks, sometimes months, and then I wrote a song about the conversation and I appended that song to the end of the podcast episode. It was super fun, totally challenging, 
loved every part of it. I like to tell myself that they're the best songs ever written about a podcast conversation. <laughs> and for this episode only, my friends, I'm back at it. Listen, in your podcast feed, as a bonus to this episode, you will find a travel poem of sorts that I composed, performed, and recorded with Eric's friend and mine, Mr. Brian Trahan. So when you finish listening to Eric and I explore his work, pop over to that bonus episode and you can listen to the composition we recorded about this podcast conversation. And that, that, my friends, is how obsessed I am with Eric Pan. <laughs> so, look, share in the obsession with me and join me in conversation with Eric Pan. Eric Pan, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Well, I make music, and I make experiences around music, including physical installation, photography, storytelling, different ways to bring people into musical worlds. And I will confess to you that I genuinely love what you do. I hope you don't mind me asking for a little biography. How did you get on this path? It definitely started with the music itself. It started with piano and then jazz. And then I think pursuing the freedom that jazz brought, that I could feel that there was something there if I followed the path towards increasing liberation it would also take me somewhere else and that's what i've been trying to do were you a serious piano player when you were a young man i think when i was growing up i loved it so much like i asked my mom for a piano and then i was getting up in the middle of the night to play something that i had written in a dream Really? Yeah. Huh. And then I was like improvising. And then I'm totally going to just do this. I'm going to throw teachers under the bus. Please. Because I was so in love with the piano. And then after my first teacher, other teachers did not know how to treasure that love. Yeah. And then so I, and then I lost interest. Yeah. Because it became about other stuff, like stuff that I wasn't interested in. So I would say that because like after the first teacher that I had, she was great, Mrs. Quay. Mrs. Quay, shout Mrs. out. Mrs. Quay in Arizona, Phoenix. After her, I I think I was not serious. And it kind of really got lost for a long time until jazz. It's really a certain type of torture, isn't it? To like sit down and have to play and be committed to a process, but you're being led astray by an instructor who at the very least isn't the right instructor for you. Right, yeah, totally. 
And it's just, it doesn't seem like a huge requirement to ask a teacher to care about what the student loves, you know, like it doesn't seem huge, but somehow, somehow that gets lost. And it sounds really common, like how many people around us played the piano when they were young and then lost interest. Like that's all because of teachers. I mean, you're looking at one, right? It, yeah, maybe not everyone, you know, maybe some kids just aren't into it. Like, sure, like, no worries, but like... Biggest regret of my life... It's crazy. ...was letting teachers interfere with my musical education. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of the reason I became a teacher. Right. Truly. Right. Right, and so you know how to do it better. You know how to treasure what requires treasuring. It's a daily commitment... And I'm not saying that I live it every day, but I sure do try. So you kind of fell out of love with it by age 12 or 13, probably. Yeah, I think before that, maybe yeah. nine. Yeah. And did you kind of go through the motions in a perfunctory way for a couple of years after that, like taking lessons and, you know, cramming the day before just so that you don't anger your teacher and but not really feel the love for it. Definitely. And yeah. it's so absurd thinking about it. It's so absurd thinking about, I was left alone a lot as a kid. So I had a lot of time just like in the house by myself. What would I do? I would actually be at the piano doing shit that I loved. Like I would put on Paul Simon yes, and play along to it. Cause that was great. Yeah. And then the lesson would come around and I would cram for it. Like you're saying, you know, it's like, it was two different worlds. Like what spoke to me and what I would had limitless enthusiasm and time for would be stuff like that. Like just, you know, shooting the shit. Like it was yeah. great. Yeah. And so you, you went to high school and you found a great many other interests. And I will assume by what you've said here that you did not go to university to study classical piano. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I didn't. Um, what did you end up studying? I studied philosophy and computer science. And because I was curious about jazz, I took like an introductory jazz class yeah. just for the hell of it. Just because yeah. maybe it fulfilled some requirement and you were super interested. So you showed up at an intro to jazz class in California. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Did you reconnect to that playful, spirited, musical side of yourself pretty quickly? Oh, immediately. And this is the beautiful thing about jazz is the music comes from the project of liberation. It's like the endeavor of liberation. So you can feel that in the music. And so even learning it, it is a process of liberating oneself, but also just even before that, just, just being in contact with others who have come before us, who have experienced that journey. I think it was Satch. He says, you know, jazz is a great barometer of freedom, right? And yet it's so rooted in a history, a history which is in so many ways, the history of oppression and tragedy. And that's like the duality of jazz in a way, right? It roots us 
in some of the darkest chapters of our history. And yet it totally sets us free. You fell in love with that as an undergrad studying computer science and philosophy. Oh yeah. yeah. It was it was it was like salvation because I would be between classes. This is UC Santa Cruz, so this is like a campus situated inside a redwood forest overlooking the ocean. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> so I would go between like computer science and philosophy were on different ends of the campus. And to go between them, I would go through the center, which is like, it felt like the deep heart of the forest where the music center is. So I would just pass through and then sneak into a practice room, which is something I've done my whole life is sneak into <laughs> practice rooms. Yeah. And I would just spend all my time there and hang out with the music kids. And so in a way that was like how I spent my college years. Did you end up changing majors? No, I didn't. But the music had a way of finding its own way through because I started playing with music people I hooked up with this bassist, Jack Schultz. We just played duo a lot. We were called the Astronomer and the Spaceman. Perfect. Yeah. Shout out Jack Schultz. Exactly. Is right? he still playing the bass? I think so, yeah. I yeah. hope so. I think he's, last I heard, he's in Austin. So The Astronomer. Music town. And, yeah. um, and so we would do gigs around town. We would do gigs at dining halls a lot, along with Chris Lauf. And would start to get gigs around town. And then so... After a couple of years at that, I started going to San Francisco for more immersion in a more serious jazz scene with a lot of talent. And a couple of years after that, I felt like, okay, this is what I really want to do. So I didn't study it, but then it just, it became obvious coming out of school, this is what I want to do. So I'll move to New York. How did it feel when you arrived in New York? Invigorating. Yeah. I think that it's difficult to separate how it felt musically from how it felt just for life because it's inspiring in both ways. To me, it's full of people who are passionate, driven, interested in something. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like there's so many people in New York just kind of like sitting around and like... <laughs> having big ideas, but then they're just like, their whole day is like smoking pot every day. You know, that's, it's, that's Santa Cruz. That's what that's that, Santa Cruz. That's, that's yeah. Santa and that's Cruz what drove me nuts about Santa Cruz, even <laughs> though I love it. So in New York, it was just like all these people doing like super ambitious things. And then the way they play is insane. Like you go to any late night session in the city and you feel the liberation coming through the music. Like there's musical ideas being exchanged, but that's just, that's just the vocabulary of something bigger, which is that we're all here to experience something greater. Did you perform in jam sessions, some of like the famous and infamous late night New York jam sessions? Did you get into that scene? Totally. That's a nice thing about the jazz world it, is it has this kind of entry point. You go to a new city, you can hit up a jam session and and start to get gigs if you're going to stay around for a while. Where was your first jam session in New York? And what did it feel like when you 
got your number called, and you sat down behind the 88. It was probably Fat Cat or Cleopatra's Needle, and both of those places are now not having jazz anymore, which is tragic. Um, but it felt incredible. Like, my mind exploded because I had taken something that was totally a hobby in California playing what felt like really random gigs with like a huge range of talents. And suddenly here I am with phenomenal musicians. And then it actually seemed like they are digging what I'm playing. That was a really crazy experience. <laughs> yeah. It's really edifying too, right? Like when you come to realize that you're a player, like you can sit in with the cats in New York. Yeah. And it's not just about the accomplishment of it. It's also about like, we have this shared language and what I'm saying makes sense to you. And not only that, not only does it make sense, like it's interesting to you. Like that's pretty crazy. And any day, even, even in New York, like you can go up and hear people who maybe their ideas are not so interesting because, you know, they're, they're just starting out or, or whatever reason, you know, it, it happens all the time. So to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm actually giving something here that is like, is being like appreciated by at least one person. That's pretty cool. Can you talk to me a little bit about the role of ego in the whole New York jazz scene? And if I may, like how you navigated your own ego in playing jazz in New York. Yeah, that's a huge topic. I think you definitely feel it. I mean, even in San Francisco, I felt it. There was a time, the first time I sat in at Bruno's in San Francisco, where someone called a tune, and I didn't know it. Ugh. But I pretended that I knew it. <laughs> and that's not a good move. Like... <laughs> I had a high confidence of, of like being able to pick it up while it was being played. Yeah. And I couldn't cause I, cause like the way that a, the way that a jazz song works, like if there's horn players, they're going to solo first. And so the horn players soloed first and I'm like trying to find the chord changes and I don't know them. And so they already know that I don't know the song. Yeah. So then it's my turn to solo and they know that I don't know the song and the trumpet player comes right up next to me and plays in my ear <laughs> oh. what the chord changes are. So that... <laughs> in, in an effort to help you or just... Is oh, this just I don't you? know. I think it could be like... Little, like you, you, you better get your ass in gear because like this is not okay what you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. That'll change your brother. That changes, yeah. And, and you know, there's ego in that for sure. And you feel that in New York too, like it's pretty common to feel on the bandstand that if you haven't paid your dues and done the work and become familiar with the lay of the land a little bit, then you should do that for a while before showing up again. Yeah. And I have sympathy for it. Like, I don't think, I don't think it's misplaced necessarily. You know, I mean, people can get heated, like definitely, you also see like fights break out on the bandstand and it's like, well, I mean, 
is that really necessary? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> right. Probably not. But there is a long history of that in jazz, isn't there? Yeah. Like there's, I mean, it's late. Mm-hmm. People are tired. Exactly. Yeah. And and there's a sense of that it's it's music to be taken seriously also. And right. I'm very sympathetic to that. You know, it's like... Show respect. Yeah. Like, do you know the sacrifices that went into creating this? And if you're if you're just going to come up here and not know anything and crap all over it, that's also just bumming us all out. So it's disrespecting the history. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I get that too. Yeah. Yeah. So Santa Cruz, New York, you've lived around a bit. Run me uh, birth to present quick. Like, okay. The cities so, you've lived in for more, for more than six months at a time. Yeah. Uh, Taipei, Taoyuan, Phoenix, Taipei again, Boulder, Taipei, San Diego. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot Wilmington. Delaware. <laughs> yeah. For more than six months? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I was thinking of Wayne's World. Hi, I'm in Delaware. That's the only <laughs> thing they had to say about Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> and then Santa Cruz okay. and then New York and now Berlin also. And you've been in Berlin for a couple years. Yeah. What does Berlin mean to you as an artist? There's a lot of space to be a little bit wacky here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I really like that. I have a friend and alum of the podcast and he talks about finding margin in your life, like creating some space where it's not paycheck to paycheck. It's not 14 hour days. Berlin can offer you some space, some margin, some breathing room compared to New York, San Francisco. Definitely, definitely true. I appreciate that a lot about here. And yeah, physical space, like like if I want to build an installation, I can do that and then have it in my apartment and it's not going to just take over. Yeah. Uh, How has being in Berlin vis-a-vis New York or San Francisco changed your work and how you approach it? It's huge, actually. It's funny because I didn't realize it until I spent a little more time here. I I was visiting and I was developing the Travel Poems show. We recorded it here and then I was developing the live show, which has like storytelling elements. And I just realized that I don't come up with those ideas when I'm in New York. Hmm. So it was more like a reflection on like, oh, when I'm here, I'm getting ideas that to me feel more imaginative and push more boundaries. And when I'm in New York, I'm not exploring in that way. Do you know why that is? Have you zeroed in on what it is about the fair city of Berlin? I think I think it is about the space or margin, as you say, because... In New York, I'm more occupied, or I had been more occupied with getting the gigs and schlepping to and from and kind of uh, not just like, oh, if I could just design a show how I wanted it, what would it be like? And so here, that's really opened up, and that's why I've started to spend more time here. But taken further, it's not the end all because then I crave the the vibrancy and the 
passion of the New York kind of yeah. energy yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. So totally different energies. Yeah. Now it seems to me, and I trust you'll correct me if I'm misguided here, that along your travels, you picked up an appreciation, perhaps even like a real bona fide love for stories. How did you become interested in storytelling? I think it comes from the music. Travel poems might have been the project that opened everything up to where I started to think about making musical experiences and so on. So even projects that are not travel poems, I think, in that way. Because with travel poems, which had its own evolution, I was frequently asking, what does the project need? Right. If I'm thinking about taking the audience to a place or an experience, then what does it need to be? What? How can I facilitate that? And the direction that it led me was to storytelling. And then it was kind of like reconnecting with things that I had loved from before in terms of how I think about stories, which can be very open-ended and giving the, the viewer or the listener a lot of agency, ideally. And so those are the kinds of stories that I that I like to explore. Were you deeply enmeshed in the worlds of stories when you were a young man, bouncing from city to city, country to country? Maybe. I think that it took form in middle school because I fell in with a crowd that was playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yes! So... Okay, I have to reconsider my thinking about your work right now. You were a big middle school D&D kid. In a way, yes. But it's funny because I had an experience with Dungeons and Dragons that was very pure. Like, I had friends who met every week and they would play the game. There was a dungeon master and then they would have like character sheets and roll dice and stuff. And I joined that once in a while, but I had one friend named Philip Venturelli. And we were super close, so we would have sleepovers. And then I remember nights when we would be at his house and the lights would be out already. And then he would just start talking. So you're in this town and it's desert all around you and the sky and the, the sky is getting dark. Yeah. And you hear a horse galloping towards you. And there's a general store and the, like one light bulb is on in the store. And what do you do? And so he gave me this experience of D&D as pure storytelling. And I think I have him to thank because that's what D&D also is really about. Like that's the essence of it is storytelling. And I think that for me that I was fortunate to see that side of it and be able to think about this form of stories as they felt compelling to me. And so I, I think I want to share that experience with people. Were you a video game kid at all? I, I was. Okay. I was too, yes. What were your games? Like story games, open-ended games? Yeah, absolutely. Like where you could decide what to do. And I loved the feeling in a game when you as the player have to kind of figure out what the boundaries of the world are because it's so open 
And the first game that presented that to me was Zelda. Yes. Where it's kind of like, I don't even know how things work. You just wander around and you kind of discover what's going on as you move through it. I think about projects like that now, like in terms of how I'm overseeing different things that I'm doing that might not necessarily seem so related. Like if I'm working on a music thing and then I'm working on a photography thing and there's like also a installation or an NFT thing, it's like, it's like they're all like side quests. I mean, I'm not actually thinking it in that way, but in terms of like just generally conceptually it feels very much like now it's not just jazz piano now it's that i could do anything it's a whole world that you're creating and i've been really grateful to participate in it a little bit here in berlin so eric there's this piece of yours that you released on the second chapter of travel poems that seems to me to almost explicitly take the listener somewhere. And it tells a story. The track is called Oak Island. I have it queued up here. Can I play it for us and then maybe just ask you to tell me the story of Oak Island? Sure. Yeah? Yeah. All right.
So again, that's Oak Island. It's on the second chapter of Travel Poems. I'll link to it in the show notes. Eric Pan, can you please tell me the story of the song? Well, it was originally called The Curse of Oak Island. Okay. Then I changed it so that it wasn't too on the nose, so it was a little more open to interpretation, but it still references a mystery that I read about when I was a kid, kind of like a National Geographic for children. Um, I don't remember the exact place, but it's a real place. There's there's a place called Oak Island. Nova Scotia. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I think it is. <laughs> cool. I, I believe you. I haven't looked it up because I think I like I like the mythology that has been created in my head and it's just it's just nice that way. I would look it up now, but I'm yeah. having too much fun and I wouldn't <laughs> want to ruin the mythology in your head. The listeners, check it out. It exists. It is yeah. So this came from a real story. Someone um maybe in the eighteen hundreds, I'm not sure, like discovered a hole in the ground. They realized that it was concealing a treasure because when they tried to dig for the treasure there would be different layers of intentionally placed traps and there'd be a layer of dirt and then a layer of rocks. And then suddenly after a, a wooden panel, if you broke through that, then the whole thing would flood with water. And it was very carefully engineered somehow to keep people away. So over many decades different teams of people came in and tried to go deeper and then made some progress but then it would just become a disaster again because the whole thing would flood so i don't know what's going on with it now yeah <laughs> but uh but the whole story was very captivating to me uh the music was written in nicaragua on ometepe the island in a lake and it felt kind of mysterious, so I gave it this title, and it ended up being recorded with Sebastian Chirboga and Dean Torrey, who are excellent New York musicians. Who's on drums? Sebastian. Wow. Seabass. Yes. He's all right. He's all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really special. Thank you. Thank them, too. Thanks, guys. There's another really special track on the second chapter of Travel Poems. There's a couple of them, actually. There's one about the Teufelsee Tower down in southwest Berlin. I trust you've been out there, spent some time, meditated on it, wrote a travel poem about it. Oh, yeah. Eerie. Yeah. My experience with that place is only through running, like through jogging. So, like... When I get to Teufelsee, when I get to the tower, I'm thoroughly and completely exhausted. And I, I see the thing knowing that I still have an hour to, to run back home, back when I used to live in the southwest of Berlin. And I know that they like have events there. There are like raves there. People break in and wild stuff. Very Berlin things happen there. But my experience with the tower is just through torturing myself on long forest runs. 
But I don't know that that's like the gem for me, at least on the album. Although Teufel Say is quite the gem. The gem for me is the track before the epilogue. Uh, something to do with turtles. What's the name of it? Turtle on the Moon. Turtle on the Moon. Turtle on the Moon is perfect. Thank you. I mean, truly. I have to ask. I, I didn't plan to talk about it, but what's behind Turtle on the Moon? It, well, the, <laughs> well, the title, I like titles that are evocative of something. Turtle um, on the Moon. Yeah. Perfectly evocative. <laughs> so I can imagine it. I mean, it's not something that I've experienced directly. No. But <laughs> I really like the music because it's unusual. Like it's kind of an outlier among the travel poems. It's uh, more pianistic and it has kind of this surprising turn after the first note. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. kind of launches you into a direction that one might not expect. So, um, yeah, I like that. I like it too. Turtles on the Moon. I like the name too. We'll uh, make sure... Our listeners, go check it out. If you're listening to this, you have to check out Turtles on the Moon. I mean, check out all these travel poems. Now, for you to tell stories that take people places, you're really trying to bring others along. And a lot of your work seems motivated by this impulse that you have to curate spaces for people. You take people on journeys in ways, Eric, that are hitherto unknown to me. And I hope you might explore with me your work, not just as a, a storyteller, but what I want to call a tour guide. And I'm not sure where to start with all that, but maybe we can start here. <laughs> you built a teleportation device of sorts. I've been in it. Uh, can you tell me all about it, sparing no detail? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, it's connected to the Travel Poems project. Travel Poems has been a journey for me and continues to be because it, it continues to evolve. It started as songs that I wrote while traveling. So on one of the trips to Berlin before I moved here, I looked at these tracks that I had scattered around that I had written and I was with Brian Trahan. Yes. Alum, alum of the podcast exactly. and alum of a high school at which I once taught. Yes. And the dear friend of ours, Brian Trahan, big love to Brian Trahan. He'll listen big to this, right? Big love to Brian Trahan. The wonderful Brian. He brought us together. Exactly. Okay. And Virgil Seagal, who I met the first time I came to Berlin and we started gigging together and doing little side projects. And so I was with the two of them and they gave me the idea and the confidence to, to basically think like, oh, maybe this can all come together into an album. So Travel Poems was born then. Through recording it, because these were just sketches, so then like things needed to be re-recorded. So then we did it on different pianos across Berlin, but then also in New York and then also in other places it became songs that I wanted to take the listener to other places with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so putting together the tracks, 
I thought that it would be cool to add soundscapes to give a layer of narrative that was still kind of abstract, but giving a different context. I thought of it as kind of like scoring the music with sounds. And then the next step was when we were going to do live shows, I was thinking about the idea of like, okay, playing the music live, there's an improvisational element, and then there's these soundscapes, but it didn't seem compelling enough. So I added storytelling of kind of an immersive type, like second person, a little bit Dungeons and Dragons. This is like where that comes from. Yes. This is where it comes from. Okay. But without necessarily like fantasy elements, you know, more more fantastical elements that I'm hoping create a sense of wonder or mystery or curiosity. So that's that's kind of how it continued to be this project which followed a North Star of making an experience of taking people to places and experiences. And the phone booth, teleportation booth, came out of that because I was in conversation with Josephine, my lady friend, who's also a musician, and thinking about different ideas for musical experiences or experiences around music. And and I was thinking it would be really cool to provide a frame that someone can step into because that is the step, right? We were talking earlier about I want the audience to take a step towards the material because that actually enables the experience. It gets them ready for something to happen. Because they physically took the step in. They physically took, yeah. They committed. Yeah. So, so for a physical installation, when they enter, that's a big deal. So then you enter this phone booth. It's made from like old German doors and windows from like 100 years ago. Someone actually stopped me on the street when we were transporting it. And they knew the year that these were manufactured. It was amazing. Oh, really? Yeah. They were like, oh, these are from 1914. And I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy that you know that. <laughs> so you're carrying around doors and windows that survived two world wars. True. Pretty crazy. Yeah, they were salvaged when there was a big move like near a studio and then and then they became the basis for making a frame around them. And it's, so it's kind of decorated very colorfully because I, I, I'm hoping that it's a curious object even from a distance. It's a little psychedelic. It's a little psychedelic. Pandelic. That's right. <laughs> it's covered in uh, thousands of felt balls that are different colors. And then someone steps in and, and then there's an old telephone and on the telephone is a pair of headphones. So that's the, that's the interface. And then if you put on the headphones, then you are transported with music and sounds, the music and sounds of travel poems. So it's amazing. It's extraordinary. It is an artistic feat of some proportion. And you can bring it to Temple Hoff Field and have strangers take a step into this teleportation booth. You can put it out in your courtyard in your apartment building and invite friends over neighbors and strangers to just step into your world. And it's just a humble invitation. It's a cordial invitation. 
It's kind of a suggestion also, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It might go so far as to say, why don't you try this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So I don't know if this should be on record or not, but my daughter was at your flat uh, for Thanksgiving and she, not unlike her beloved father can get a little overwhelmed in uh, social situations where there's a lot of people. And this was a big Thanksgiving dinner. And the teleportation device was kind of like the space for her to unwind. You know, every 20 or 30 minutes, I would see that she disappeared and I knew where she was. And there's like this, like, plush carpeted base to it sequined carpet it's sequined right and the but the walls are plush yes with like magic carpets or something yeah i don't know how would how would you describe them well they're fabrics from the turkish market okay so they're yeah different patterns and fabrics yeah Mm -hmm. and uh so she would just sort of take refuge in the teleportation device while the rest of us were just trying to adult she was the only kid there. I tell you that to tell you this. She's recently taken up the recorder and she had said to me like two or three weeks after Thanksgiving during our Christmas break, she was playing the recorder around the house nonstop, which is beautiful until you live there. <laughs> it's rough, you know. I mean amazing. You know, love her, love her. And I'm like, Oh, where did you where'd you get that tune? And she's like I made it up in Eric's telephone booth. Wow. That's amazing. True story. Oh, it's so beautiful. So you have this teleportation device and you, in addition to inviting people to it and bringing people into it, you take this teleportation device around Berlin. You found a reasonably quick way to take it down and set it up and you'll set it up in like Tempelhof Field, for example. It's very interesting to do that. I, I'm pretty new to it. I actually have like what the next mobile installations I want to build are. And so this is in a way it's kind of a, a trial, but I'm learning a lot from it. What have you learned? The biggest discovery was, so we had spent the day with it, introducing people to it. Sometimes people would be curious and then I'd usher them inside and invite them to share notes in a guest book and so on. People would listen to the music and that was fun. At the end of the day, we are taking the booth down and getting ready to transport it back to my house, which takes a few trips because the doors and windows come off. And then if you load that into a car, then you're like loading the doors and then coming back for other parts. And That's exactly what happened. We took some doors to a car. We came back and then there was the phone booth, mostly intact, just without doors. And it was such an object of curiosity. Yeah. Especially to kids who like it was, it was swarmed. Sure. And it was so obvious that (laughs) this object deserves to be an object of mystery where I'm not standing next to it and no one is kind of being uh, 
museum guide yeah. it needs to just be by itself for a visitor to discover for themselves what it is and that's where its power lies and so yes. that was an amazing discovery and so they went behind the dollar general store and there were two horses and a mysterious box <laughs> <laughs> exactly so since you got me thinking about it thanksgiving that is I've been lucky enough to be invited to your flat a couple of times. Thanksgiving was but one. There were a couple other events that I've been to at your flat. You develop and facilitate a lot of events. And I hope you don't mind my saying that you seem uniquely gifted in creating what I want to call like empowering spaces where artists can come together, try out new ideas be vulnerable, connect with each other, and to build bridges. So I think we should try to explore your efforts in bringing people together and to bring them along on a journey. And while, you know, questions about motivation might not be too sexy or they might be a little on the nose, here I am, I'm going to do it. What motivates you to curate these experiences for others? It's mainly because I want those experiences for me. Okay. And I feel that maybe other people would like them too. I think about events most of the time as someone who is inspired by two very dear friends I had in Santa Cruz when I was going to college, they would host something that they called Shop Show. Every week, anyone was invited to come and hang out and eat dinosaur cookies and <laughs> play music or show off a pottery that they made. And it was such a great vibe and so loving and open and generous that I just want to keep that torch lit and make that space open for other people who want to show things. And I also want to be able to show things. So a lot of events are coming from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be sure to bring dinosaur cookies to the next one. If I'm so lucky to get another invitation, I promise I won't play piano again. That was a one and done situation. I am curious. <laughs> I see you looking at me. <laughs> I am curious how your work, and I think you work really hard. I think you carefully consider how to create these events. You're good at it. And I think part of it's just like the nature of Eric Pan. But a lot of it is you're tender and you think carefully about what it should look like and feel like if we're going to elicit from performers a good performance. I also think that there's a possibility that hosting these events and curating these spaces changes what you do on the piano. Am I close? I think it totally does, but not in a way where I 
see the details. Because I think that they're in dialogue. I think that holding community and immersing myself in performance, those speak to each other. But I don't know, like, the words exchanged. I just, I can see where the conversation's going. I mean, this is interesting to think about because I'm not a natural at social interaction. I have a huge secret, which is that, like, all of my social interaction abilities have been learned deliberately. Like, there was a point where I was a shy kid, not knowing how to have conversations with people, but feeling like I wanted to. And I think that, I mean, this is just a theory. I think that I just didn't have role models to show me how it could be done. Yeah. And so what felt natural was to be more extroverted than I had the skills for. So what happened is over the years, especially in college and moving to New York and suddenly kind of being by myself without any social group, I just started talking to people and starting conversations with people on the street, people in the park. As a deliberate effort yeah. to like sharpen yourself. Exactly. Like how do I make a friend? How do I ask a girl on a date? Like I don't know. I didn't know any of those things. So it became something that I learned piece by piece. And now I also want to keep going in that direction except with building communities. That's extraordinary. I feel obliged to offer you a hearty compliment for you have taught yourself splendidly. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to learn the complicated set of social norms and mores with which we operate. And you've managed to navigate that in a couple of countries and a couple of cultures. And that's pretty awesome, man. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Not what this podcast is about. Um, but thank you for sharing that. Like that's, that's pretty cool. And maybe it's because your robust and as I see it, beautiful social life is a manifestation of hard work that you seem deeply invested in creating opportunities to share feelings. And I was reminded of this when in advance of our conversation today and just trying to think about you a bit, I popped over to your website. I read a chunk of prose there. And with your consent, I'd like to read it to you and ask you a couple of questions about it. Is that okay? Sure. You write on your website the following. Imagine the universe where we are connected by shimmering beams of light, everyone to everyone. One quirk about this universe is that the beams send emotions between us, one million per minute per pair, clearly and effortlessly. Joy is instantly contagious. A hurtful thought toward another is understood with compassion, seen alongside the place of sadness where it arose. Every feeling triggers infinite empathy, therefore boundless acceptance. 
the beams, you say in parentheses, send only the stuff of our souls, not our thoughts. So we still have privacy, interesting conversation, and the ability to prank each other silly, of course. Now, imagine we already live in this universe, except long ago, we somehow forgot where the beams disappeared off to. But we've always kept the music with us because it's our best way to speak in the old way. First of all, I love every word of it. Second, I got two questions about it. First, can you just explore with me how your work as a pianist, but also as an interdisciplinary artist, if I may, how your work speaks to empathy and boundless connection. I mean, that's where the whole thing's at. Yeah. Like, that's the whole reason to do anything is to connect with other people. And the way to connect with other people is through empathy, through, through care. And then my second question. Why is music the best way for us to speak in the old way? I haven't found a more direct way to communicate an emotion. Sometimes it feels like music was a prepackaged vehicle just for that purpose, just to be able to send each other feelings. It might be. Do you recall some of the first songs you heard that made you realize, like, this is it. Like, this piece, this song, this track says more to me. It evokes more in me than anything that anyone has ever said. Definitely. There were many moments like that. And that's the beautiful thing about music, right? Like even non-musicians have plenty of songs like that. For me, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata was one because that was the song that was playing on the kitchen boombox on the floor where I was hanging out when my mom was cooking dinner, which prompted me to ask for a piano. Okay. So that yeah, must have been, yeah. Yeah, it's a great memory. And I definitely felt it with kind of blue and there's been other songs like but then it, it starts to be very connected to the stuff of life like teenage angst and discovering something new and then they show you a song and then that changes your life and you know like jeff buckley's lover you should have come over that yes. did that to me like that yeah. was a very special so from all genres you've just been Breathing it in, connecting to it. Yeah. Me too, man. Cool. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know how decisive of a role music has played in my life, but it's one of the things that makes me respect you and what you do so profoundly. And I envy you like a motherfucker because <laughs> you're so talented, but I'm going to keep my envy at bay. I'm going to keep my envy at bay. 
he looks with demonic eyes <laughs> across the room. It's the anvil on my chest, the envy anvil. But, hey, I'm aware of it. Lest I seem glib, I'm more appreciative of you than I am envious of you. But I ain't gonna lie, the envy's real, man. <laughs> I'm not the only piano player that's envious of you. And, and part of the reason I'm envious of you is that you play with a sensitivity that I can only dream of. You sent me a track that seems to illustrate this sensitivity and this seemingly infinite empathy that, in a way, I think defines you. I want to play this track, or at least part of it. And then, if you will, I'm hoping you might tell me a little bit about the track. It's called Twilight Far. What do you say I play this? And then, would you be interested in cracking open a bottle of wine and uh, carrying on the conversation after that? Great. That sounds good. I happen to have a bottle of wine from... Do you know Hannah Doherty? She was on the podcast. She was at the season nine release party. She's an artist, like a visual artist, an installation artist. Have you met Hannah? Do you know Hannah? Did you listen to the podcast? I listened. I'd love to meet her. You should meet her. She's great. And she left a bottle of Riesling in my refrigerator. So I think we should drink it. Perfect. <laughs> I think my wife wanted it, but I'll get away with it. We'll get away with it. I won't get in trouble. I promise.
again, that's Twilight Far, and I just learned that it has not yet been released. It's sort of being launched on this here podcast, about which I gotta say, I'm wicked honored. Thanks, buddy. My honor. And uh, we got our Riesling all poured here. So uh, how about a, a toast to Twilight Far and to being in conversation? Cheers. I think that Twilight Far is a profoundly compelling exploration. Tell me about it, will you? Yeah, I um, actually don't remember writing it. What I remember is the moments before recording it. And I remember the feeling of exploration while doing that because there's a lot of revisitation in the song to the same place again and again. So there's repetition, but it's kind of as if either as the performer or the listener, you're coming back to the same moment, the same chord, but from there you might go in one of two or three directions. And there's something I really like about that. There's a lilting to it that's sort of inviting and almost off-putting at the same time. It feels like perpetually off-center, but it kind of finds a home somehow. There's a searching in it. Yeah. There's enough space to experience the anticipation of what might come next and yet be surprised, maybe. That's it. How does it feel knowing that it's going out into the world as of the publication of this podcast, and then, of course, you're going to publish it on all of your channels? How does it feel to birth it? It's a cool feeling to publish music. And then this one, this one has a certain duality that I really like because the soundscapes before the music starts are experiential in a way that is um, kind of communal. And, you know, it's like the sounds of being with a group of friends who are jumping one by one into the water from a cliff. And then you as the listener do the same jump and then you go underwater and then the track takes place underwater. But then the sounds are laughter and fun and an extroverted mood. But then the music, once it appears, is deeply reflective and taking place in one's inner world. You're like underwater and you have the time to just be with yourself. And so to traverse those worlds, that holds a certain power for me too. And, and I think that that's also cool in terms of like presenting those together in one piece. Yeah, because you're a legit playful guy. It engenders in me a, an idea. Now, you've seen me scribbling notes here and there on my little clipboard here. I have an idea. And what I want to do is I want to ask you how your work relates to a few words. It's kind of like a word association play. You down to play a little game with me? Sure. Okay, I'm going to share a word and ask you to explore 
how this word relates to your work. Eric Pan, will you play with me? Great, I'm in. Okay. I've done a bunch of them. We won't do them all. Expectation. What does your work have to do with expectation? The idea of expectation is something like an obstacle. It's like I'm on the open ocean beset on all sides by monsters. And those are <laughs> those can be expectations like often. Uh -huh. But I want my path to be a calm one. Like ideally I don't give in to believing that they're a real thing. I think I'm really going to enjoy this game. <laughs> the reasoning helps. It does. Puzzles. Oh, that's, it's multi-layered, right? Like there's puzzles that I want to solve or explore a big realization I've had during this conversation, but just in general, I think is like living questions instead of needing to find answers is I actually quite enjoy it. Like Rilke talks about, like just live the questions like it's cool. And so puzzles are the same in that they can be explored and that it's kind of nicer to not solve them because then you can keep exploring them. And, you know, what does it matter if you leave a puzzle unsolved? Like the real magic there is in the allure of the puzzle and that you can come back to it later and see what's there. And then there's the other layer, which is presenting other people with puzzles, which I love doing like even on the phone booth. I don't know if I told you, but there's like, there's two puzzles embedded in the art, like in the decoration, you know, and they're not like, I'm not necessarily telling people, well, this is, I've, I've <laughs> ruined it, it now. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but they're there. Like if you want to explore them and, and I really like that. I like hidden things. Yeah. My next one was magic, but I think you already touched on it. Sure. Authenticity. Um, I think authenticity is one of those words that can get overused, but I think at the end of the day, it's something that we all want everyone to have. So it's a, it's a tricky thing. I think that it can't really be striven for though. Yeah. So it's kind of just something that like, maybe, I don't know, I check in and see like, is that true to myself? And if not, then there's some more work to be done. I'm really enjoying this game. Can we do one or two more? Yeah. We need yeah? To, yeah, whatever. All right, cool. Seriousness. Oh, it's, I think it's my trap. I think I, <laughs> I want to be playful all the time and I get serious because I still have a, I still have like a desire to be understood and I think that gets in the way. I think it would be nice to just not care about being understood. Yeah. So. I feel that. Yeah. I feel that. If you uh, figure that one out, can you tell me about it before you bottle and sell it? Yeah. One more. Sure. As many M as you want. Mystery. Oh. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. I was talking with a friend recently about what our favorite movies were. She said she liked stories that are super tragic. <laughs> uh -huh. So that was, that's her thing. Uh -huh. And then she asked me and I, I realized that I like, I like stories that make me think, 
wow, what's going on? I want to know more. I just, I'm so curious about what's happening. Like there's so much mystery. I just want to get into that world and be part of the process of watching it yeah, unfold. Yeah, be, yeah. And actually it kind of ends when there's answers. And you like to be invited into that mystery. Yeah, definitely. Then that goes a lot to what I'm trying to create too. Last one, intention. I think this is also kind of a loaded word, but it's so important. I get frustrated when I'm in the presence of art or other things and I feel that it's lacking in intention. And that could be my own handicap because I just can't see it. But I feel like, like to me, everything is the gift. Are you familiar with the gift? The book? Yeah, the yeah. book actually, yeah. I, I've read it. I love this book and I think about it a lot. And I think that actually everything is about the gift. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about, I thought that about the Celestine prophecy when I was 16. <laughs> I was, I was wrong incidentally. <laughs> you might be right. I think about it because also it, it relates a lot to the music industry and art industry the presence of the gift and when it's not present, it's kind of like, it's the defining factor of how things are truly valued, how art is truly valued, how other possessions are truly valued. And I think intention is a component of that. So I have to ask you about this. It, it's kind of dawning on me. It's vaguely related to intention. Eric Pan, you have the best feed on Instagram. And I would urge all of our listeners here who daily dally on the gram to follow you at Pandelic. I'll link to it in the show notes. Every day there's a new treat. Sometimes out of nowhere, there's like a virtual smorgasbord of treats that you post on the gram. And I've long wanted to ask you, what, <laughs> what, what is your intention on Instagram? What are you doing there? I love it. It's great. It's legit half the reason I'm on Instagram. The other half is to shill for this podcast. What you doing there? That's amazing to hear. I, I, and it's crazy because after having this conversation with you, I can answer in a way that I wouldn't have been able to yesterday. It's the same stuff. Like I want to share fascination. So I'm showing stuff that I like in a way where I'm thinking about how it might be seen by other people. So I'm trying to maximize surprise but also like a an aesthetic not necessarily coherent but it's not coherent it, yeah no, yeah it's not going but but some sort of like it, it exists like there is you know and sometimes elements get juxtaposed with each other and that's interesting too but basically i'm like jostling the viewer yeah for that that's what i want to do is like hey Check this out. This other thing exists. Yes. Oh, it's so great. I'm such a 
fan. I'm Gaga about Pandelic on Instagram. Please don't stop. There's a world where you're like, you know what? Instagram's for the birds. I'm done. I think I'll probably just quit too. It's so good. So the the world of Instagram is magnificent and strange to me. And I'm just now kind of starting to get it. And I embrace some of it and I reject some of it. I'm also just now beginning to think about the world of NFTs. But I know that you've been thinking about NFTs in a serious way. So I'm hoping you might give me an edumacation here. How about a little NFT 101? Starting with, what are NFTs? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, there's a lot of different ways that people could approach answering this question. I'm going to try to do it in the way that makes most sense to me, which is it's already like going a, like a slight step beyond like what exactly they are and what they enable, which is scarcity and ownership. Just as words, it's kind of abstract, but we don't have these things online. Like once we started having computers and then the internet came along, we could copy things, duplicate them endlessly, which can be amazing, but also it takes away from the realness of life. I mean, you're in front of me, you're a, you are your own person. There's just one of you, but then also the things around us, like this couch is here, this one couch and I can sit on it. It's not just like an abstract thing and I can duplicate it endlessly. I mean, that would really mess with my mind if we could just do that. And, and I think that the internet as it has existed before NFTs has been a little bit like that where the rules of the real world stop applying and it really messes with so many things, including how we see art, how we value it, how we value music. If I'm a painter and in real life I, I give you a print and I tell you it's one of 20 prints, that's pretty cool. Like, even if you don't like the print, you might be like, oh, but this is, this is, like this is a rare thing, like maybe I'll hold on to this. And we haven't had a way to do that until now. So with an NFT, I can do the same thing. I can be, I can be like, hey, I made, a, I made a new song and there's only 200 of them and I'm giving you a copy. And then the gift is there because that's a world of a difference from saying, oh, I recorded an album and I put it on Spotify and it's on YouTube and here's a link and you can listen for free. Like that's cool too, but that's not special to you. That's not, even if I give you a code to download it, you know that it can be copied. You know that there's a, there's this kind of a bottomless 
limitless uh, abstraction there that can forever devalue it. Like we can feel that. And so that's what NFTs are, is they are scarcity and provenance because you also know that it's coming from me or it's coming from someone else who got it from me, for example. In a way, it's a, it's a new technology, but in my view, it's reconnecting us to the real world. I mean, we don't need to get into like the technology that enables that, but basically it involves like signatures that can't be forged. So you know that it's, if I'm giving you an, an NFT as a gift, or if you buy one, that's really yours. It's my word also because I represent like, oh, there's 200 songs. I'm not going to just like come the next day and make a hundred more. Right. Just like an artist probably is not going to misrepresent that they're going to just suddenly have more prints than they did of a certain work. So that's really amazing because then it also enables me to give you something where you feel the gift, you feel the love. That's, I think, where we're going. Because it's, I mean, the appeal of it is so undeniable that of course there's going to be more of this. How do you imagine that the NFT marketplace will impact how you do what you do? So I took an album that I already recorded called Lullabies of the Pleiades, and I decided to offer it as NFTs on a platform called Catalog. They're based in Brooklyn, and they specialize in a certain certain form of NFTs, which are one-of-ones, which we're familiar with from the art world. Like, there's only one Mona Lisa. I mean, there's, pro there's like, other ones that he, like, Da Vinci, like, worked on in this workshop that are kind of, like, similar, you know, but they're not, they're not the one. There's only, like, the one. You can make prints of it, but he didn't make prints of it, so we know there's one. So we know what one-of-ones are, and that means they're kind of special. I published these tracks that I had already recorded. Each track is a quote-unquote lullaby, and I put them on catalog. Actually, I mean, the first thing I did was I just put one of them on catalog, and the next day someone bought it for like $400. Oh, congratulations. That's cool. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I, I was shocked. I was like... <laughs> This is real. What's going on? Because I hadn't, I had never done that. And I, I was very new to this world too. This is like six months ago. And, um, can they sell it? They can sell it. They can sell it. And then I can get royalties from the sale on the secondary market. Like for, for anyone not familiar with the NFT world, it really works like the world of paintings. It's just that we never had that for music. Not really. I mean, maybe we did like for, you know, when it was physical, when it was like vinyls or something, maybe you had that. But for digital music, like no way. Right. But now we do. And it's pretty empowering. So that started happening and then it's kind of opened doors in this way. The biggest shift for me was to feel like, oh, music is actually worth something. Like monetary value as well as what we value it intuitively for. And that's pretty crazy. It's great. I'm excited for you. Thanks. It could be huge. I think so. 
And I can't wait to see how it impacts your work, how your work evolves. And maybe it'll inspire you to create even more, even though you're a pretty prolific cat, I should add. But if there's a lucrative market for your work out there, you know, you could find some allure from the Benjamins. Definitely. And I think it's also about, we've uh, kind of been step-by-step more accustomed to this world where, where music is only worth money in certain contexts. And that's problematic, of course, for musicians who want to make a living, other artists who want to make a living. But what's more corrosive, I think, is the loss of confidence that musicians start internalizing, like that something I'm doing is not worth paying for. And I think that that's a very tricky thing that can be believed without the realization that it is believed. So... In that way, this whole NFT world is actually really transformative because connecting to not just like kind of like an amorphous blob of fans on Spotify who might show up in your monthly listeners count, but then disappear. Like there's no, there's no faces attached to them. It's just like, it's just numbers. Yeah. Like that's a very different thing from oh, if I make a hundred versions, a thousand versions, 10,000 versions, whatever of this NFT and they all find collectors, like those collectors chose this. That's a little bit like people buying your album, except it's an even higher tier of belief in the work. Yes. And that's, that's why it's really something to explore, I think. I'll be exploring it with you. I'm super excited to see how you interface with this brave new world. And uh, it's thrilling. Allow yourself to be thrilled by it, Eric Pan. You've been a thrilling guest. I have enjoyed every second of our conversation. And that should be enough. But I got two small asks. May I? Great. First, I hope you might share with me a professional triumph and a professional failure and let's begin with the failure so we can wrap on the note of triumph <laughs> okay um there's so many uh-huh you've been at it for a while just make choices that's kind of your thing I, yeah i don't I, like i'm not I'm a little scared to fail in public, so there's not so many obvious failures. A lot of my failures are me kind of tucking my tail and disappearing and realizing that I would have liked to do differently. And most of those have to do with public performance, wanting to sound good, and then because of the desire to like impress an audience falling on my face because that's really not the way to go about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If I try to think of a public failure where other people were present, it's probably when I was in class with the, it was like a star musician came to guest teach. Come on, drop the name. I'm here. Oh my God. Come on. Fred Hirsch. 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. No. You're laughing, so I'll laugh. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was crazy. And he had very, very non-complimentary things to say after I played, oh. you know, in, in front of a class of like 12 people. Like just, of course, everyone's like hearing this and watching. This is when you were an undergrad. This was graduate school. Graduate school. Yeah. Yeah. Great program, City College. With John Petitucci, it was really nice. Yeah. It was really, really great. Like, yeah. Um, but Fred Hirsch laid in you. He did. Did you fail to perform up to your capacity? I think so. Yeah, I think I was, I was under the same kind of self-pressure that I said like moments ago about wanting to impress like those students and the teacher. And I think I really, it's been amazing in the last year I've seen how to get out of that almost like completely. Yeah? Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. All right. Keep talking. How do you do that? Oh my God. Well, that, I uh, I would thank Kenny Werner, Effortless Mastery for this, which I, I read that book called Effortless Mastery back in college. But recently, Lazar furiously scribbles book title down. Absolutely. Oh my God. This, this book... I think it can be transformative for a lot of people. Kenny Werner. Yeah. Effortless mastery. Absolutely. All right. Say no more. Yeah. Okay. I got two eyes. Okay. All right. So you wet the bed in front of Fred. I did. And then he, and then, I mean, he said stuff. I kind of want to get this on a plaque and put it up because <laughs> it was like, he said something like, man, you got a lot of problems. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so extreme, right? The fact that it became okay and I transcended whatever that was is kind of cool because it didn't affect me ultimately in a negative way. And like, is that a testament to his like borderline insensitive, maybe slightly abusive way of, you know, giving feedback? Like I wouldn't do that with my students, but, you know, basically maybe that was like the the moment of biggest failure that I could Right. That I could like identify. But at the end, you know, it's very illuminating. Yeah. Let's temper that. Sure. With a story of triumph. Oh my God. Um, you triumphed playing in a little experiment at my season nine release party. That was really transfixing. I was totally entranced. And then I looked at my people, including the 12 kids under 12 years old in the back. You took the room. At like five o'clock on a Sunday. That was awesome. But that is surely not your greatest professional triumph. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention it. All right. Have at it. That was a lot of fun. I, I, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is another mentor. His name is Jeff Hamilton. He's just like an incredible drummer. Plays with Diana Krall, but then he has his own orchestra and... So it's like a school big band and Jeff Hamilton's coming in and hanging out with us for the duration of the preparation for the concert. And then we do the concert and we play the show and it's fun. He doesn't live in Santa Cruz. This is in Santa Cruz actually. And he doesn't live there. So he, he, while he's there, he gives a workshop at the school drum, drum workshop. And I kind of like just attend on a whim because I have classes, but then I, you know, I want Jeff Hamilton's great. Like he played Caravan by himself on the drums and you can hear the melody and then he does a solo. Like it's insane, right? Yeah, yeah. 
He's Jeff Hamilton. He's Jeff Hamilton. He's also very charming. So he's regaling the crowd with like, here's how Mel Lewis plays, but then here's how like Buddy Rich plays. And then, you know, kind of telling these stories about different big band drummers and also other kinds of uh, ways of being musical. And then someone asks him about an approach to drumming. He answers with a reference to the previous night's concert. He's like, at a certain point, when you have a rapport and a trust with the band you're playing with, that allows you a freedom to do certain things. Like, for example, yesterday with this band, we reached that level, which by the way, like that was a great concert. And and Eric, are you here in the audience? Are If no. you're here, you got to... Like, stand up, take a round of applause. What? You played your ass off that <laughs> night. Like, and that's crazy. Yeah. Like, that's just, that's something, it felt otherworldly because it was so unnecessary for him to give that, not even knowing I was there. And just to feel like someone believes in you. It's just someone like that, you know? That's the kind of thing that you can take with you your whole life and feel like it's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I believe in you, Eric Pan, but I'm no Jeff Hamilton. One last favor to ask you. Would you kindly recommend to our listening audience something, anything, some artifact that you would endorse that somehow speaks to or illustrates your work? And it better not be a Fred Hirsch album. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, we could talk some shit, but I'm not going to do it either. Um, this is a tough one for me. I, I have, I have generally a hard time with like picking something out of the, the blue, but on the walk over here, I was somehow reminded of this movie, Norwegian Wood, which is based on the book, which is based on the song. Yeah. But, um, But the movie is its own special thing because it has a certain look and a certain sadness and aesthetic and texture that I can't really identify with words. And I haven't seen it more than once, I think, but it just holds a place in my heart. Yeah. And it's tender and it's beautiful. I've not seen it. I'll check it out. And I trust that some of our listeners having had the opportunity to get to know you here, they'll check it out as well. Eric Pan, thank you so much for being on For a Living. This was a bona fide joy for me. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And there you have it, my friends, my conversation with Eric Pan. As promised, Everything that we talked about is detailed in the show notes to this podcast. I link to all of Eric's stuff. You should explore it. That cat is otherworldly. He's also, I don't mind telling you, my piano teacher. I just started taking lessons from him recently. It's a total pleasure. He's the best. So pop over to the show notes and learn more about Eric. If you're an Instagram user, you should definitely follow him at Pandelic. He has the best Instagram account out there. Guarantee. And of course, while you're checking out the show notes, you could check me out at patreon.com slash for a living. How about that? 
Now, when you're done poking through the show notes and clicking around and learning a little bit more, here's what I want you to do. Pop back to your podcast feed and make some time and some space to explore the four-part composition that Brian Trahan and I created to reflect this conversation. So Brian Trahan used to be my student back in Chicagoland. A couple years ago, he moved to Berlin. We've become really close. Totally love the guy. He was on the podcast in season seven, and we had a blast together. Trahan introduced me to Eric Pan. So Trahan and I sat down in his studio amidst a bunch of pianos and keyboards and synthesizers. And we took this musical journey together, and we kind of fell in love with it. And we debated back and forth as to whether or not we should add lyrics to it. And I had this idea. I wanted to reach out to my pal, the poet, Josh Weiner. Josh was also on the podcast in season seven. And when he was talking about his poetry, he was talking about the ways in which jazz kind of informed and inspired his thinking about language and poetry. And in particular, he was talking about the ways in which Thelonious Monk moved him. And dig this, after I recorded that conversation with Josh, I reached out to Eric Pan and I humbly requested that he record some Thelonious Monk. And then I used Eric Pan's interpretation of a Monk track as the intro and the outro music for my podcast conversation with Josh Weiner, which by the way, I heartily recommend. So the composition that I urge you to spend some time with brings together three podcast guests. It brings together Brian Trahan and Eric Pan and Joshua Weiner. And it's a real exploration. I think it feels really special. I'm happy to be able to share it with you. So make some time for it. Maybe create some mental space for it. It's a little bit out there. I hope you'll join me in the exploration. And either way, I'll be back in two weeks' time. Stick with me, kids. Big hugs. Take care. And I'll catch you in two weeks. Why is music the best way for us to speak in the old way? Yeah, maybe that's debatable. Oh, no, I, I, I'm with you. you. I'm on your side of the debate. Right. It's debatable, no, yeah, but I'm, I'm on your side. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking of that as a challenge. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> first fight on your yeah, on yeah. Your first physical <laughs> altercation on your podcast. So let's say it's true. Let's say that music is the best way for us to speak the old way.